This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Casey, man, I'm real excited that we're able to have this conversation today. It's been crazy the last couple of weeks. That is an understatement. Wait, does does I don't think our audience knows you. I feel like you have to introduce yourself first. Oh. <laughs> I was hey, gonna say, nice. like <laughs> just coming in hot, just with this <laughs> like, you know, deep, melodious voice, just like, yo, crazy, this is crazy. You gotta introduce yourself <laughs> to the people. Yeah, I was trying to be smooth. <laughs> Um, hey, I'm Franz. I am the producer of Creative Conversation. Um, you'll be hearing from me from time to time. I really enjoy being able to be a fly on the wall and produce these conversations for you guys. And it's it's so funny because I feel like this is, for those who couldn't tell by his voice, Franz is black. And <laughs> I, for those who couldn't tell by my voice, I am black as well. And it honestly feels like you know, you know, Franz, you and I talked about this. It would have felt weird coming back with another episode like nothing had happened. And, you know, we actually had one all teed up and that episode is going to come out eventually. But yeah, it just it would have felt weird just coming back with a normal conversation. And so, you know, Franz, you and I talked and we came up with this with this idea of doing a really kind of like a, a special three-part series uh, for creative conversation. And um, it's been, it came together really quickly because obviously the the situation in America and really across the world came together very quickly. Um, but the conversations that we have teed up, I'm, so excited for and i think they're very necessary i mean i spoke with this incredible uh activist who's been doing her part in spotlighting the erasure of black trans women from the larger movement there's also this uh, ex-google employee who channeled her personal trauma into a very necessary app and platform but for this week we are going to focus on mental health franz how's your mental health these days <laughs> I am trying my best to stay away from the tequila. <laughs> Your tequila is my red wine. Um, I, it's it's bad. It is really bad. And I did my recycling the other day, and I am ashamed. Okay. <laughs> when you when you take those, when you take the trash out. It's just like those bottles are clanking. You're just yeah. There's a specific shame, and I think. I mean, that's the thing. I think. I, everybody's mental health, I think, is suffering in to an enormous degree because of because of, first of all, COVID-19. And then now with this current wave of protests against police brutality and racial injustice, I mean, it's been it's been a lot and specifically a lot for the black community, because, of course, we've seen that COVID-19 has affected the black community disproportionately. And now we have full-on raging protests in the streets. Uh, and so it's, we are going through it as a community. And so you actually flagged uh, this this incredible psychiatrist, Dr. Jess Clemens, and she is so phenomenal. The second you suggested her for this, I went and looked her up and I actually, I remember, I, interestingly enough, I came across her name because she is actually Beyonce approved. She, Beyonce actually shouted her out on her website in 2019 for doing like, you know, 
Yeah, she said she exemplifies Black excellence because she's just been doing so much amazing work in helping to reduce the stigma around mental health, specifically for the Black community, because, you know, we often like to just pray our problems away, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, not, that's not enough <laughs> these days. And so. that <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so she's been using her Instagram presence in a really creative and innovative way to have, have this open dialogue around mental health. And so, you know, in our conversation, she touches on the unexpected ways mental health can affect us, what the stress of racism is doing on the Black community, and what you can do to help process that stress in a more healthy way. Franz put down the tequila bottle. <laughs> and also, she gave us really great pro tips for self-care. Everyone's talking about self-care these days, but there's a way to do it more effectively. So, ah. Uh, it, it's it's a fantastic conversation, and I really hope that it. I really hope it hits someone with what they need right now because we're all going through it, and oh god, it's so much. <laughs> yeah, this conversation is very timely, and I think it's going to resonate where it needs to. Fingers crossed. So this is really the first. This is the first episode in this uh, three part series we're doing. So. I'm excited. I'm excited to have these necessary conversations and hope you guys enjoy it. All right. So Dr. Jess, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. No, this is, um, it's important. What we're, <laughs> I feel like this is, we're here to talk about just mental health and especially in this particular confusing and anxiety riddled time. But before we get into that, I really want to start with you. You know, I, I would love to hear how you found your passion in the first place. What led you to the field of psychiatry? Oh, um, so I started out as like a precocious kid. I always wanted to know the answers That's to word everything. Like you like precocious? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I like always had an, an intention of being a medical doctor and kind of followed that journey. Um, and in medical school during my resident, I'm sorry, during my uh, rotation on psychiatry, I fell in love with it. Um, it. For me, it was when I saw that depression was actually a condition that can make people physically sick. You know, like I, I, I was helping to take care of a man who was so depressed, he was catatonic, so he wasn't really moving much. Literally, he would sit in one place, blink very slowly. It, it was really quite profound to see that. Um, and when we treated this patient over a period of weeks, he got better. And the attending uh, psychiatrist, which is like the psychiatrist who's finished with everything, right? Who's um, teaching me, he says, this is psychiatry. And for me, that was, that was enough to, to really continue my interest. So I went into that field. I had no idea that that was what I would choose in medicine, but it really became a calling yeah. uh, for me. So it was that moment. I love that. And I know that a key part of your work seems to be around reducing the stigma of mental health, specifically in the Black community. And so I'm curious to know, I mean, how are you reframing what therapy is, what even mental health means for people who have a preconceived notion of what they think it is? Absolutely. You know, so a lot of what um, we experience in the Black community as far as our relationship with uh, mental health and, and treatment 
it, you know, it's been quite negative. If we think about, um, you know, during the 1960s when, you know, the Black Power movement was really going, you know, on strong and a lot of Black men who uh, subscribed to that uh, movement, who, you know, identified with the Black Panther Party, they were picked up and put into mental institutions where at that time, um, you know, you would stay indefinitely. There, there are new laws now that really protect people from, from being um, institutionalized in that way, but that was what we saw. And it led to things like schizophrenia being really identified as an illness that primarily affects Black men. You know, if you think about if two men, white, one, one white, one Black, go into um, an emergency room and they see a psychiatrist the, and they have the same symptoms, the Black male is likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, which has a lot more, you know, negative societal kind of implications. And the white male would be more likely to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which we mm -hmm. think about that illness as periods of time where they're sick. So right. a lot of what I do is try to be very honest about the history um, of this field of psychiatry, of uh, you know the mental health field, and also just point out how how more much more changes have really you know come about. There are, you know a lot more if we compare it to the 60s, a lot more, you know, black providers now, you know, so I want to encourage people that, you know, they often ask me if I can find a psychiatrist that looks like me, whether it's, you know, a black male, black woman, whatever, um, you know, that there are more providers available, still not a whole, whole lot, but there are more available. So a lot of what I do now is try to point out that there are people of color that you could see, black folks that you could see. Um, there are certainly, uh, you know, different different ways that you can see your provider. If it's, you know, on the computer, you can have that option. But also to really point out that there's a lot of pain that we have to really address. And therapy is one of the, one of a really excellent way to do that, to really talk about our experiences. And you've done so well within your profession, but also with your presence on social media. And I think that that's one thing that you've just done incredibly well in just making normalizing the conversation first and foremost around mental health in a place where people live instagram honestly <laughs> and social media so i would love it if you can just talk about the work that you have been doing with your live q a's on instagram and really having these these conversations uh on social media about mental health yeah so a, a lot of what i think about can help with the stigma really is to your point, normalizing the conversation. So I, I really want people to feel comfortable saying how they feel. You know, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, especially, you know, black people, we, we have a tendency to feel the pressure to be strong. You know, I think I remember my mom saying that people don't really want to know how you feel. So if someone says, how are you doing? You, you know, you, we're, we're, all, we're kind of all conditioned to just say the nice thing. So oh, not me. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> great. I use, listen, when I used to work in coffee shops, people would come in and be like, oh, how are you doing? I'd be like, listen, my feet hurt. My back hurts. I have <laughs> so much schoolwork to do. So that's how I am. How are you? And it's interesting. Even when I did that, I was kind of joking, but not really. I was real, like, you know, kind of fed up. But uh, it kind of I feel like that let people talk about how they actually feel because I think like when people say how are you that's or like how, how's it going that's a form of just hello which is just weird but anyway no that's I'm that's true <laughs> no I and, and to your point it really lets the guard down yeah. so that's what I try to do um you know through the Instagram live you know I would kind of pick a topic and and just teach a little bit about it but really again the goal was just to get people comfortable with hearing terms like therapy or mm -hmm. feelings or recognizing that 
um, you know, a lot of the terms that we use are not really describing our feelings, like saying, you know, I feel some type of way, like, let's dig a little deeper. What is that? You know, <laughs> I love this for real. <laughs> I think I feel some type of way. <laughs> yeah. So like, that's wonderful. That's a great start. How can we dig a little bit more and find out what that means, you know, and really helping people to learn how to harness and use those emotions, like the anger, you know, really how to sublimate that, how to turn that into something that's useful. Um, and so it kind of started there. And then, you know, I became interested in people were like, I want to do things in real life. So I started a conversation series called Be Well. And it's really the same thing. I, you know, I get to sit with some pretty amazing people. And the goal is to kind of have a deep conversation about their life and really to, to really um, shed a light on how people that we look up to or we admire, we think that their life is so grand, they don't have problems. They share how they've overcome and they work through things. Um, and so again, the whole goal is really to start those conversations. Some people have told me they've you know, gone to therapy as a result, but if we could just start talking about it, you know, that's the start. Yeah. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. How has this approach that you've taken with social media given you a new perspective on your career? Because not every psychiatrist is on Instagram the way you are. So have you gained any new perspective on your career and what you do through the work that you've been doing on social media? Uh, that's a great question and great observation. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of psychiatrists do not use social media in the way that I do. You know, I I'm, I'm share a lot about my life. People know that I'm married, that I have, you know, a two month old now. I was say, Congratulations. I saw that baby. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I think, you know, to, to your point, it also has led, you know, me to be recognized by a few people. Forbes recognized that I'm using this um, in an innovative way. Even the American Psychiatric Association was interested about how I'm using social media. Media. So, you know, I, I very much see myself as a black woman, um, as a trailblazer. I think, you know, it's important for, for all of us, no matter what space we're in, to recognize that it's, on some level we are still trailblazing, mm -hmm. um, especially if you just look at different, you know, lines, different professions and just see the numbers, right? We still have a lot of work to do. So um, for me, that was really kind of how I look at it, that I'm trailblazing. Um, you know, a lot of the older psychiatrists have also been very supportive because one of the questions I'll get is, well, what do you do if you're taking care of a patient doing a, you know, therapy that, um, you know, they know a lot more about you. How can that affect the treatment? But again, the, the core of therapy is really learning to talk about those things that are difficult. So if someone has this fantasy that, you know, I have some grand life and they think I'm going to solve their problems because I'm Dr. Jess on social media, the goal is really for them to say that so we can understand what it is about me that you think that I'm able to somehow, you know, save you, so to speak. So it's been wonderful for me. I, I really like to kind of push the boundaries. And the other positive thing I've seen is that a lot of, you know, young, um, you know, black med students have shared that they are interested in the field of psychiatry, which is a win for all of us if we can get more black psychiatrists. Definitely. And, you know, I, I really want to dive into the, the work that you actually do, because I feel like people can have a broad idea of what poor mental health can lead to, right? I think the first thing that many people leap to is, you know, feeling sad or withdrawn or people like overusing the word depressed sometimes. <laughs> and so, but I'm curious to know, I'm like, what are some of the unexpected ways that mental suffering can manifest? Ways that 
people don't realize they're suffering until it might be too late? Like, what are some of those unexpected ways that mental, that poor mental health can can manifest itself? Yeah. So, you know, I think anxiety is is one one way that you know, I, I see people using the term a lot more, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like I think what people are seeing in their minds when they say mm. anxiety. Like I will say, you know, during medical school, before I really even, you know, had a better experience with this, this uh, field, you know, I would imagine anxiety as like a middle-aged white woman who's just, you know, vocalizing, um, you know, a lot of her fears and, you know, people kind of saying like, it's fine. I think people still, when they say anxiety, are picturing that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I, I want you know people to recognize is that it's not always a vocalization of what your what your fears are. It can really manifest as a lot of tension in the body, right? Yeah. If you are someone who you know you have a lot of neck pain, back pain, um, you know you might have anxiety. You might not realize that you're fearful of things. You might not realize that you have a lot of worries. Um, and so I think that's one way to think about it, that anxiety can manifest physically, like in the body, right? Some people may feel um, like they have butterflies in their stomach or they may have, you know, symptoms like diarrhea, things like that, that might really indicate that they're anxious. So um, I really want people to think about it that way, especially if we're using that word. The other thing to think about, especially, you know, um, now that, you know, we're having more, more sort of greater awareness around, you know, the anti-Black movement um, is the hypervigilance, those sort of trauma symptoms, right? You might not actually meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, but there are a lot of studies that are showing that um, racism, that police killings really do negatively affect, um, you know, the mental health of black people. So things like being hypervigilant, being very keen and aware of your environment, startling easily, um, not being able to sleep well, doing things like drinking more, you know, alcohol or using more marijuana when you're feeling stress. That's another term that people may use to describe anxiety those all may indicate that someone is in fact suffering mentally. We may just think that's normal, you right. know, like it's normal to be hypervigilant, it's, but it's not. No. <laughs> it's not. So you know, that, that's, that's a part of, I think, what we have to realize about how deeply these things can affect our mental health. Yeah. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because, you know, I came across a study, um, well, I think it was like it was released maybe at the beginning of the year and it's from Auburn University that was basically looking at how racism both experienced and perceived can affect black people at its at the cellular level, like how it can deteriorate, you know, your actual DNA. And I think a lot of times black people may we always kind of joke about generational stress, but it's very true. It's like it's affecting us at a cellular level. And I so when these moments and I me personally I always have this internal struggle as a black man, but also as a journalist, when we have these incidents of police brutality or just any form of you know, racially motiva motivated violence captured on film, on one hand, it's great because we have this, this, this clip that can hopefully hold someone accountable for their actions, but we see that playing out time and again on our social media feeds, like, you know, being a journalist, we have to cover it. And so there's this, there's this level of kind of imposed stress, like you want to know what's going on, but at the same time, it's really, really hard. Because I, I haven't, I didn't watch the George Floyd video. I couldn't. 
I saw the still and I was like, I can't do it. I actually wrote an essay uh, a while ago when When They See Us came out called Opting Out of Black Trauma because I couldn't make it past the first episode because mm-hmm. I was so frustrated and so fed up because we know how that story ends. And just to watch it all play out, like I love Ava DuVernay, Bradford Young, cinematographer, amazing. I'm sure all the actors, amazing. I'm sure it's wonderful, but I couldn't get through it. And so what are some of, what are some ways that that Black people can navigate this area of being subjected to, even if, even when we're not facing it ourselves personally, mm-hmm. we're still being subjected to this trauma. So how can we better navigate what's going on in the world, but also protecting our mental health? Yeah. I, I mean, I think what you described is not unusual. You know, I, I also could not look at that video for the same reason. It's very traumatic. You know, what is that doing to to us as we watch it? So, you know, I, I would I would start by encouraging people to really listen to that that internal sort of navigator, that voice, you know, so to speak, that's telling you if, if it's too much, um, because it is a traumatic experience to watch it, you know, and, and, and maybe there's not a specific study that looks at that yet, but that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, deteriorating one's mental health or playing a role in that, you know, would it lead to someone having, you know, difficulty sleeping, nightmares, depression, all of those things. So start by opting out. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, we certainly don't need more evidence within the black community to know that this is happening. So I don't think you have to watch every single, you know, video um, when it happens. The other part is to, again, use that feeling um, and turn it into something useful. So, you know, anger can be a very destructive emotion if we let it fester. Um, But it often tells us that there's other emotions under it. It could be uh, fear. It can be sadness, disgust. All of these emotions can be under that. And so use it right? Now is the time to, you know, people are protesting. That's one way to, to use that emotion. It can be used by, you know, doing things like writing out how you feel and maybe passing that on to, you know, colleagues, to, to friends that, you know, are white or, or, or not black for them to understand. I did that. <laughs> I love that you did that. <laughs> yeah, as you say that, because I specifically, I resurrected my Tumblr account, which I haven't touched in five years to write an essay about um, about white people. Uh, <laughs> and just basically how this is, they need to step up more and these are sort of, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it helped a lot. It's so funny that you say that because I, 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 it really, really helped. Just kind of like, I wrote it more so for myself than to mm-hmm. hopefully change anybody's mind. I just had to get those feelings out. And I was yeah. like, but, let me just go ahead and post this and maybe somebody will resonate. And my phone, I actually had to turn my phone off because people just kept hitting me up like, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, <laughs> my, my, my Caucasian friends, please. <laughs> like, it's, it's just not now. So. But to your point, that that process is liberating for, for the individual. And that's always what I focus on, right? If anyone comes in and they have any issue that they're experiencing, it's, I want to encourage a person to find ways to, to, free those emotions, right, to express themselves. And so if writing, 
like you said, maybe that wasn't your intention, but you know what, if you sat down and you wrote down ways that people can learn and how they can be mobilized to support the movement, because most of, you know, most of your friends probably really want to find a way to get involved, if not all of them. So it can be very useful to do that. So I'm, I'm happy that you did it. And, you know, I, I do hope anyone, you know, who, who's wondering to, that's, that's another way to do it and then keep your body active. You know, you want to definitely do things to just keep yourself as well as you can try to eat well, you know, try to move your body, really try to get things like, you know, go out, get some sunlight, you know, all of those things can kind of help to pick up the mood. Um, certainly, but, but, but number one is to really center what you need. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't say, you know, that I can't express myself because I'm worried that, you know, people will perceive me differently if I write out this, you know, this, this, step-by-step step of what, you know, white majority can do. I, I think that is also a part of what's, what's to your point of that study that you, you shared. That's what starts to break down, you know, things at the cellular level. That's what causes the, the aging too soon. That's what causes the telomeres to shorten on the DNA. So center your needs yeah. first and foremost. And it's so funny that you say get exercise because I also got over my fear of riding bikes in New York City and bought a bike. I oh. love bike riding and but like in New York it's 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 a blood sport, but I was like, you know what? I need I need to like get out of the house, get some sunshine, get some exercise. So yeah, look at me just doing all Dr. Jess's checklists and <laughs> like my first time talking to you and I'm just already ahead of the game. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I think and I, I also find it really interesting this this idea of the additional stress and anxiety that racism can have on black people specifically. And I think racism is such a, it's such a broad spectrum. And I think oftentimes people focus on the hyper violent or someone just shouting the N word when it can be microaggressions. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, oh, can I touch your hair? Or like, oh, do black people wear sunscreen? And just, <laughs> I'm inciting my own <laughs> childhood trauma here. And so, you know, those things really do sort of chip away your identity. It can make you feel very quote unquote other. So I guess like, is there any tips or suggestions on what people can do to combat those everyday microaggressions, those things that you may not even realize it's messing with you until like the moment's over. So what are some ways that we can better navigate just everyday situations for those microaggressions, honestly? You know, I think that's going to be an area that I hope that there will be more, you know, data that, that will come out again, because what that will do is help to really shed a light on the issue so that now it's no longer something that we really talk about that we know is real, mm -hmm. but that data can say, this is what happens when we're experiencing microaggression on a regular. What I do and a lot of what, you know, again, help this black girl from, you know, Alabama, whose parents are from Detroit what helped me get to where I am is very much, again, what I shared before about centering what's important to me. Um, and so I, I really kind of lend that advice to people, you know, um, who ask this question. It's, it's not going to be easy to confront it every time, but I tell you, if you're, if you are feeling uncomfortable, if there is something in you that's saying this isn't right, I encourage you to speak up, you know, and come up with ways that, that feel good to you. You know, like I think a lot of people are afraid to say something back because they don't want it to sound like harsh or they don't want to, again, they fear the repercussions because we see so many examples of that. But 
I'm very bold and I say that you have to find a way to really discover your own voice so that you can can express to the person what it is that you don't want them to do anymore, right? right? Part of that came from my own therapy, really confronting this, um, you know, with my therapist who's an old white man and we would talk about these things and he would help me see that no, this, these terms that you're using, for example, assertive was a word that we, he helped me to realize that's actually what you're doing. You're being assertive because maybe I was conditioned to think if I stood up that that was being inappropriate or troublemaker, right? So again, a lot of things that we have learned, we have been conditioned to learn this. So I encourage a person, if they feel uncomfortable, find a way to communicate what it is that you need, but do not just allow yourself to continue to be mistreated, especially if it's happening over and over, you know, by the same group of people, you know, in your life. Right. And of course, on top of this current wave of protests against, you know, racial injustice and police brutality, we're dealing with (laughs) COVID-19. And it's, 2020 is so garbage (laughs) over 2020. Uh, And it's weird because I feel like, you know, we've been, even though this particular um, wave of protest is the largest that we've seen, to some degree, we've been here before. Mm -hmm. COVID-19 is something that we've never dealt before. So when you have these curveballs, I mean, first of all, I mean, how are you dealing with it? How is Dr. Jess dealing with something that is so we're still in the in the middle of it. We're still we don't know what the full economic and health impact it'll have. And for me, I mean, honestly, for me personally, that's where a lot of my anxiety comes from. Like right now, everything is okay, but I don't know what it's going to look like at the end of the year. I don't know what it's going to look like, you know, a year from now, two years from now, like we're nowhere near over this. So not having any, any foreseeable end to this is really, it's like just somebody's like following me around with like an ax, just like, oh, I'm going to get you. And it's, like, <laughs> it's not great. So how are you dealing with something like COVID-19, something that is so unexpected and unprecedented, really? Yeah. So um, a lot of what I practice and I always encourage people to kind of look into or just, you know, practice themselves is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so mindfulness is when you are able to be intentionally paying attention to a moment. Right. And so the reason that's important is because something that you shared, a lot of people do this. So one of the things that we all kind of are, I think, tend to sort of think about is how we can figure out what the problem is, solve it, and then that quells the anxiety, right? So like if you knew that this was the end and that there was a plan, you know, in the, in the fall that would work out, you probably would feel less anxious. And that's, that's certainly the way most people feel. It's, it's a problem-solving way to cope with anxiety. What mindfulness does, what this, the, the practice of paying attention to a moment practicing that regularly, what it does is shifts your ability to cope to really accept. And what I mean by that is if you can accept that we don't really know what the future holds and find that sort of like mantra, believe that um, over time, that actually helps to reduce the anxiety. And so for me, you know, I really kind of look at this moment as really, you know, all that I, that I have, obviously, you know, I hope to have a very long and fruitful life, but, but that allows me to really not expect to know what's going to happen a month from now, two months from now. And that helps me to really just stay in the moment and really helps to reduce the anxiety. 
And so there are definitely studies out there that show that people who practice mindfulness, they have less anxiety, less depression, because they are able to really just focus on the moment. So when their mind goes three months down the road, if they're already planning January, you know, 2021, that leads to anxiety. But if mm -hmm. they can learn to stay focused right now, what do you have? What, what are those things that are working for you? What do you know? Yeah. That helps to kind of keep things in check. Okay. Got to add that to the list. I feel like mindfulness. mindfulness for a minute, but I don't think I've been actively <laughs> practicing it. So, you know, ugh. you Two can do it. Jess's list is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell people it's something you can do every day. You know, if you, um, you know, use, for example, when a person is like showering, you know, that's the time to really take in um, what's happening. So if you can get more of your senses involved in a moment, that's a mindfulness practice. So it can be like, what does the body wash smell like? What is the steam like? You know, yeah. what does it feel like to, you know, be sturdy and now clean all of those things. What is it like to hear the music playing? Like all of those things that, um, you know, can be an opportunity to really practice mindfulness. It doesn't have to be something very dramatic. You don't have to sit down and a yoga pose and, you know, namaste. You don't have to do that. <laughs> it's right. Being intentional. It can be when you're eating a piece of fruit. It can be taking an orange in, for example. But that practice over time really helps to reduce anxiety. Good to know. And, you know, I know that there's been a lot of discussion around uh, self-care. And it feels pretty self-explanatory. But are there any best practices for self-care? Yeah. So I remind people to, you know, set healthy boundaries. Again, this goes back to what, you know, we kind of talked about in terms of learning how to use our voices to, to help ourselves. So boundaries can begin with, you know, your loved ones. If everyone is, you know, expecting you to help them with things or, you know, maybe not as much now because everyone's sort of isolating, um, you know, social distancing, but in general, right, if you have a hard time saying no to people and you end up feeling very drained at the end of the day or week, <laughs> practicing a healthy Let's get out of my head, mind your head. <laughs> um, but but having healthy boundaries is a way to practice self-care mm -hmm. right learning how to say no learning when to say no learning that saying no is not you know a bad thing it doesn't ruin relationships even if it feels like it will but it helps to protect you <laughs> you can't you cannot pour from an empty cup yeah. So, you know, that's going to be a very important tool to, to use in terms of practicing self-care. Oh, Dr. <laughs> Jess, what a way to end because you just, you just have to end this whole thing with a read, just a read toward me. And that's fine. You know, I, but that's exactly how I feel. Like, I think, you know, I, I, I have a tendency to always be the one to, to listen and to absorb. And I think at some level, I'm very much an empath as much as like, as much as I can be sort of like a salty bastard on the exterior, like I'm very much like, I take things too hard and quick. Um, and so it's like your pain is my pain. And then I just don't know how to draw those boundaries with people because I want to help, you know, I want to be that shoulder that someone can cry on or whatever. But I, I, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm already drained with everything. And then when I take on someone else's stress, it's like, what's left? So. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well then, Dr. Jess, um, <laughs> thank you for all of that truth. Um, I have some work to do and I feel like a lot of people do as well, but no, thank you so much for this. This was absolutely wonderful and very necessary. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, I think if I could just say, you know, one final piece, mm -hmm. because I do want people to not feel 
so much pressure to think that we can somehow, you know, do all of these different tips and we won't have anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. The real work really does lie in addressing the structural racism, yep. right? And until that's really dismantled, until that is addressed, you know, I do think that we, you know, we will continue to kind of have these, these outcomes. So I just encourage people to try to do what you can to keep yourself uplifted. Um, but, but know that it's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, after this, I'm not kidding. I'm actually going to go take a few laps on my bike. So good. (laughs) I've been inside all day. I need it. So uh, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I really, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Enjoy your day. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. As I mentioned earlier, this episode kicks off a special three-part series that we're doing here on the podcast, so be sure to tune in next week as I talk to artist and activist Ian Field-Stewart. She's going to be talking about the erasure of Black trans women from the larger movement and the incredible work she's been doing behind the scenes and on stage. Make sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to Creative Conversation, and I'll see you next week.